Once again to the Raw Attitude Podcast on the Questionable Endeavor Network, where we chronologically take you through episodes of Monday Night Raw from the Attitude Era. I am, of course, your host, professional wrestler Henry Hugepex, the suplex-throwing human duplex. As always, thank you for listening, and we welcome your feedback at rawattitudepodcast at gmail.com or reaching out to us via Twitter at rawattitudepod. Also, you can subscribe to us on iTunes, Stitcher, and Google Play as well, just like our new listeners in Hungary have done. That's the country of Hungary, not to be confused with Ryback, who is, of course, Big Hungary. And, of course, if you write a five-star review for us, I will be sure to read it on this very show and give you full credit for doing so. A quick heads up before we start, with the holidays upon us, it may be a little while longer before the next episode comes out due to vacation, travel, etc., But boy, oh boy, you're going to want to tune in for the next show, because it will be our 1998 King of the Ring slash Monday Night Raw mega episode, and Adam from the Rundown Wrestling Podcast will be joining to talk about all the results. You definitely do not want to miss that, so stay tuned. And now, let's get into Raw. It is Monday, June 22nd, 1998, and we are pre-taped six days in advance from the Frank Irwin Center in Austin, Texas, a town which is, of course, named after the current WWF champion. True facts. We open with a recap of last week's festivities where Vince McMahon accused The Undertaker of masterminding an attack on Stone Cold Steve Austin, and Paul Bearer then challenged Austin and Taker to face Kane and Mankind inside Hell in a Cell. Unfortunately for Paul, that plan ended up backfiring when he locked himself inside the cell in order to stay out of harm's way. But the Undertaker emerged from under the ring and beat the living shit out of him, culminating with a pretty gruesome bearer blade job. We then went off the air with the awesome visual of Austin and Kane brawling on top of the cell. Michael Cole's narration informs us that Paul Bearer will be with us tonight live via satellite, and, for the first time ever... Kane will speak to the world and give us his thoughts. Cue up the opening credits, the pyro, and the obligatory scanning of the crowd. Not too many quality signs tonight, but I did spot a few, including DX, the Viagra of the WWF, okay, Owen, you're not black, get out of the nation, and Sable, come back, I love you, so apparently that fan must not have seen last week's episode of Raw, where Sable returned in the very first segment. So again, not all that many noteworthy signs, but one thing that is noteworthy is the fact that for the second week in a row, the Hell in a Cell cage is hanging over the ring. We open the show in the same way we have quite often lately, with Vince McMahon walking down the ramp, still with no entrance music for those scoring at home, as the fans boo him mercilessly. Vince grabs a mic and simply says, Ladies and gentlemen, I give you the next World Wrestling Federation champion. I give you Kane. Sure enough, the Big Red Machine comes to the ring as Jim Ross tells us that tonight, Kane is going to break his silence and speak to the world for the first time in 20 years. That means that Kane went for all the 80s and most of the 90s without ever saying a word, and I'm going to call bullshit on that one because, come on, you mean to tell me he never once sang along to Hungry Like the Wolf? Not buying it. 
As Kane walks to the ring, we amusingly get a shot of Paul Bearer sitting at home watching Raw on his television, which is pretty amazing because this show was pre-taped six days in advance, so I would love to know how he was watching Raw live on a Tuesday night. Vince begins by telling Kane that this Sunday will be the greatest day of his life when he defeats Stone Cold Steve Austin. All Kane's days of torment will finally be over because he will have overcome the odds and become the WWF champion. However, this match will not be any ordinary match because, well, I'll let Vince tell you why. Austin as Kane stands before you here tonight. He dedicates this title match to his father, Paul Bear. And furthermore, Austin challenges you like you've never been challenged in your life, Austin. Because Kane, this Sunday, challenges you, Austin, to a match that's never been held before here in the World Wrestling Federation. No, never in history. A match in which there's no such thing as a pinfall. There's no such thing as submission. As far as a count-out is concerned, that doesn't exist either. A disqualification won't even count. No. Kane challenges you, Austin, to a match in which clearly the winner will be the man who draws first blood on his opponent. Wow. What is... What does he mean, first blood? That's right, Austin. A first blood match. That's right, folks. For the very first time in the history of the WWF, Stone Cold Steve Austin and Kane will square off in a first blood match at King of the Ring, where the only way to win is to make your opponent bleed. Not only that, but Vince has a further stipulation to add, and it is this stipulation which is so powerful that it causes Kane to pull out a voice box and break his aforementioned 20-year silence. Let's take a listen. I'll tell you how confident Kane is. Kane is so confident that he will offer in writing a special provision in the contract that states the following. Kane, if you would speak publicly for the first time. What does the contract further state? champion this Sunday, he will set himself on fire and breathe his last breath. First of all, I find it pretty amusing that Kane only said he would set himself on fire, but Vince had to add that part that Kane would actually burn himself to death live on pay-per-view. Always the promoter. 
Second, they showed Paul Bear at home on his couch reacting negatively to Kane's statement, so apparently not even Kane's own father knew that he would be promising to go down in flames. And third, it is pretty cool that they're playing this up as though Kane was speaking for the first time in two decades, but that voice box just makes it seem a bit silly. And it probably doesn't help that a certain cartoon, which is popular with the WWF audience around this time, also features a character who uses a similar device. This is like the gun I used in Nam. You weren't in Vietnam, Cartman. Were you stationed in the name? I must say, though, a first blood match is a pretty wise choice for Kane, particularly considering the fact that he wears a red full-body suit and a red leather mask that's probably at least an inch thick. Even if he did bleed, it would probably be pretty difficult to tell. Will that work to his advantage? We shall find out this Sunday in a match which would make John Rambo proud. Well, you did some pushing of your own, John. They drew first blood, not me. Look, Johnny. Let me come in and get you the hell out of there. They drew first blood. We then segue into our first match of the evening, a King of the Ring quarterfinal match, the world's most dangerous man, Ken Shamrock, versus the world's strongest man, Mark Henry, in a battle of two men whose nicknames are complete lies. The other members of the nation accompany Mark Henry to ringside, but, as usual, a bunch of referees and Commissioner Slaughter then order them to go backstage. Slaughter typically stops them at the top of the ramp, but this time he let them get all the way to the ring before sending them backstage, so I guess the nation is making some progress. Also, for the second week in a row, D'Lo Brown is missing in action due to the torn pectoral muscle he suffered at the hands of Dan the Beast Severn, so we are once again deprived of his constant head wobbling. As for Shamrock versus Henry, it was an alright match, with Mark Henry mostly on the offensive throughout. Jim Ross even threw in a subtle jab at Mark's moveset when he put Shamrock into not one, not two, but three separate bear hugs, and JR referred to his offense as, quote, very simple, very elementary, but a very smart strategy. Shamrock eventually hit Henry with a hurricane rana, and Henry rolled out of the ring to take a breather. While Shamrock talked with the referee, Vader ran out from backstage and hit Henry with a splash, then ran backstage. You may recall that Mark Henry interfered in Vader's match last week when he was facing The Rock, so it appears that the Mastodon has now gotten some revenge. Henry then rolled back into the ring, where Shamrock hit him with a belly-to-belly suplex, and that was enough to score the three-count and advance Shamrock into the semifinals of the King of the Ring tournament. After the match, Kevin Kelly interviewed Shamrock, who proceeded to say nothing eventful, but we did get a zoomed-in shot of his face where it was apparent that he was missing one of his two front teeth. I posted a picture of this on our Twitter, at RawAttitudePod, and let's just say that, um, well, it's pretty unflattering. But we then move from the beast to the beauty as we get a quick shot of the crowd where we see that a mysterious man is sitting amongst the fans. And yes, that's right, folks. After seven consecutive weeks of shitty vignettes, Edge is now actually in a WWF arena. He will have his debut match later tonight and, well, let's just say that it will certainly have an interesting result. We then cut back to the ring where Dustin Runnels is kneeling on one knee and praying. Last week, after defeating Mark Merrow, he gave thanks to his Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, so it appears that he has actually found religion now that he has given up his gold dust character. His opponent tonight will be X-Pac, who has China by his side, and now also has his own customized Titantron video. That second part is particularly amusing, because this is only his second match since he returned to the company, so his entire video basically consists of him crotch-chopping and accompanying the other members of DX to the ring. Thrilling stuff. 
Also, I will point out that X-Pac is wearing red and black ring gear for the second straight week, which seems a little strange, because the go-to colors for DX are obviously green and black, but hey, maybe he's just a big fan of Kane. At the very start of this match, we get an interesting moment as Dustin whipped X-Pac off the ropes and ducked down to give him a backdrop, but Pac reversed it and hit him with the as-yet-unnamed X-Factor. Not only that, but Dustin just bounced right back up from it, and X-Pac hit him with a clothesline, so needless to say, at this point in time, Pac wasn't considering it to be his finisher. A few seconds later, the usually reliable Jim Ross then says, quote, Both of these men have been intercontinental champion, which is, of course, not true. Dustin is a two-time champion at this juncture, but, spoiler alert, X-Pac never ends up winning the Intercontinental title during his entire WWF run. I wouldn't have minded seeing it happen at some point, but alas, it was not meant to be. However, he does at one point somehow end up holding the WWF Light Heavyweight Championship and WCW Cruiserweight Championship at the same time, so there's a nice consolation prize. Strangely, it almost seems like the two wrestlers reverse roles here, as X-Pac would put Dustin in a headlock, and Dustin would then try to get support from the crowd before building his comeback. You would think X-Pac would be the good guy here since he's part of DX, but Dustin was working as the face in peril instead. Odd choice. The finish of the match came when Dustin bounced off the ropes, but China tripped him up behind the referee's back, which, I will stress again, is a heel thing to do. X-Pac then hit Dustin with a spinning heel kick to score the three count. After the match, even though he got cheated, Dustin extended a hand to X-Pac in a showing of good sportsmanship, and X-Pac crotch-chopped him instead. Yet again, I must ask, who's the face here, and who's the heel? I actually found myself feeling kind of bad for Dustin, and I don't think that was the intention. Triple H also came down to the ring to give X-Pac a celebratory hug for no apparent reason, so that's a nice precursor to future Attitude Era episodes of Raw, where we will get far more Triple H appearances than are necessary. We then cut to Paul Bearer's home, where Jim Ross asks him what he thinks of Kane's vow to set himself on fire if he loses at King of the Ring. Bearer says that he knows Kane means it, but he's not going to have to do it, because he will be victorious this Sunday, and Bearer will be there in his corner to see him win the WWF title. Bearer amusingly says he will, quote, get off his sickbed, but he's actually just sitting on his own couch, so I'm not sure if that counts as a bed. When we come back from commercial, Jerry the King Lawler is now in the ring, wearing a bright purple coat. He says that he's been having problems with Al Snow lately, and he heard that Al snuck into the cleaning lady's closet and is dressed in a disguise somewhere in the arena. Lawler tells Snow he doesn't have to try to surprise him, he can just come to the ring and meet him face to face, because the King is finally going to give him what he wants, a meeting with Vince McMahon. Sure enough, Al then walks through the crowd dressed as an old woman, and Head is wearing Lawler's crown, which Al stole last week. Strangely, we also get a quick cutaway back to Paul Bearer's house, where he's watching this segment on TV. Why they felt the need to show us Bearer's reaction to the Al Snow-Jerry Lawler confrontation, I do not know, but there you go. Maybe Bearer's looking to recruit another psychopath into his stable. Anyway, Lawler tells Snow that if Snow gives him his crown back, he will... Uh, hand him a piece of paper, which I guess contains details about a potential meeting with Vince McMahon. Snow decides to make the trade, but once he examines the document, he sees that it is not a guarantee of a meeting, but rather a contract stipulating that he can meet with Vince only if he and Head defeat the team of too much at King of the Ring this Sunday. Al then starts yelling at Head that Vince just wants him to, quote, do the J-O-B on the PPV, and Lawler then confirms that if Al and Head lose, they will be gone from the WWF. But in storyline terms, isn't Al not actually signed to the WWF right now? 
He's showing up unannounced every week and getting kicked out by security, which certainly seems like something you wouldn't do for a guy who has a contract. Al then says, why bother waiting for King of the Ring? He'll lay down for too much right now if that's what Vince wants. Sure enough, Brian Christopher and Scott Taylor then run out from backstage, but Al then proceeds to get up and smack them both with Head. He then runs over to Jim Ross on commentary and tells him that he and Head do not lay down for anyone. Al and Head then scamper off through the crowd, but it appears we now have another match lined up for King of the Ring. Our next match is another King of the Ring quarterfinal, and it's a rare heel versus heel match. Mark Merrow, accompanied by Jacqueline, versus Jeff Jarrett, accompanied by greatest character ever Tennessee Lee, but not Southern Justice. As a reminder, Tennessee Lee debuted Southern Justice as Double J's bodyguards three weeks ago, but they have strangely only made one appearance alongside Jarrett since then. Before the match begins, Jim Ross informs us that Sable has now taken a position at Titan Sports, the parent company of the WWF, but that is all the information he knows about the situation so far. You may recall that Vince McMahon brought Sable back to the WWF on last week's episode of Raw, so perhaps he has also given her a cushy corner office. And speaking of Sable, she would make her presence felt in this match. At one point, Jarrett bounced off the ropes, and Jacqueline tripped him up behind the referee's back. Merrow then hit Jarrett with his TKO finisher, but the referee ended up being distracted by Tennessee Lee and Jacqueline getting in each other's faces outside the ring. At that point, Sable herself started walking down the ramp, dressed in an all-black, skin-tight suit that essentially made it look like she was auditioning for the part of Catwoman in the next Batman movie. I will also note that it appears that Sable has, ahem, enhanced herself in the weeks where she was off TV, because it certainly looks like she's hit a bit of a growth spurt since we last saw her. Anyway, the appearance of Sable is enough to distract Marrow, which enabled Double J to sneak up on him and hit Marrow with a DDT. The referee came back into the ring and counted the pinfall, giving the victory to Jeff Jarrett, who will now face Ken Shamrock this Sunday in the semifinals of the King of the Ring tournament. Our next match is Kane versus one half of the WWF Tag Team Champions, the Road Dog Jesse James, accompanied by Billy Gunn, at least temporarily until the referee makes him head backstage before the match starts. These refs are real sticklers when it comes to wrestlers not having managerial licenses. As a quick fun side note, both Kane and the Road Dog are still currently employed by the WWE in the year 2016, so eh, good for them. Early on in the match, Kane actually busted out that face-grabbing move that he used in 2011 and 12 when he was trying to get John Cena to embrace the hate, so now we know that it goes back much farther than that. Fun fact. The match went for just over four minutes, with Kane controlling most of it, as you might expect. At one point, Kane went for the choke slam, but Road Dog hit him with a low blow in an attempt to break it. Instead, however, Kane no-sold it, so I guess we can assume that the fire burned away his testicles? Kane then was successful at hitting the choke slam, which he then followed up with a jumping tombstone to score the clean victory. After the match, Paul Bearer was shown on the Titantron live via satellite. JR asked him why The Undertaker attacked him last week, and Bearer said that the reason was clearly because Taker was upset with him for revealing that he was behind the plot to take out Stone Cold Steve Austin. However, as Bearer was talking, the lights in his house started flickering for some reason. As you might expect, who should show up at his house but none other than The Undertaker? Taker starts beating the shit out of Paul and knocking over some of his furniture, However, Taker might wish they had done a second take of this beating, because when he pushed over one of the dressers, Taker slipped and fell onto the couch. Whoopsie. The segment ended when Taker lifted up a large piece of furniture to throw at Bearer, but, much like when Brian Pillman was about to shoot Stone Cold Steve Austin with a handgun, the feed cut out before we could find out what happened. 
For more on this Paul Bearer beatdown, let's go to the June 29th, 1998 edition of the Wrestling Observer, and I apologize in advance for the fact that there are so many run-on sentences. Undertaker suffered an ankle injury, which is believed to be a cracked ankle with some bone chips, doing an angle at the 616 tapings in Austin, Texas, on location from what was supposed to be Paul Bearer's house that he was tearing up, which aired on the 622 Raw, although there wasn't a noticeable spot on camera where he was injured. I would actually disagree with that because I think it was when he fell on the couch, but whatever. Ironically, during the angle, Paul Bearer also suffered an ankle injury, which appeared to be when Undertaker was throwing furniture around and something landed on his leg, and although his role at the house shows is more limited physically, couldn't appear to manage Kane on the shows for the rest of the week with them using the television beating as the storyline excuse. Undertaker also had Corpus Christi and Tyler off and tried to work in Houston, but he was so physically limited that he and Kane could only do a very short, poor match, ending abruptly with a double countout finish that was obvious to most fans that something was amiss. Undertaker will almost surely work King of the Ring, albeit in a limited capacity, and the feeling is that Mankind is going to have to almost completely carry their cage match. Mankind having to carry the Hell in a Cell match, eh? Something tells me he's up to that challenge. But there you have it, both The Undertaker and Paul Bearer sustained ankle injuries during that brief 30-second beating, so perhaps they should avoid angles involving large pieces of furniture from now on. When we return from commercial, well, ladies and gentlemen, it is now time for the debut of Edge. One thing I had forgotten about Edge's entrance is that they actually changed the screen to blue and purple hues as he's making his entrance through the crowd, all while cutting back and forth through his entrance video. I'm not sure how long they keep this up, but it looks kind of cool. As Edge comes to the ring, Jim Ross tells us that the only thing we know about him is that he is a tortured soul from Toronto. And honestly, after seven straight weeks of those vignettes, I kind of wish JR had left out that part. He's a super mysterious loner. Also, he grew up in Canada. Edge might have actually been a good candidate for a parts unknown origin, but alas, too late now. His opponent in his first match will be Los Bariquas member Jose Estrada, who puts the boots to Edge as soon as he slides under the ropes. Jose punches him in the corner, then whips him to the opposite side of the ring, but Edge then proceeds to run toward Jose, and, in a very interesting footnote, the first move Edge ever lands on an opponent in a WWF ring is a spear. How fitting. And truthfully, it kind of looked like shit because Jose took too long to fall over, but needless to say, the spear is not yet Edge's finishing move. Shortly thereafter, Edge dropkicks Jose to the floor. He then gets a running start and does a somersault plancha, flipping over the top rope and landing on Jose in a very impressive-looking spot. Edge rolled back into the ring, and referee Tim White then proceeded to count to ten, giving Edge a countout victory in his very first match. Now, if you think that having Edge beat a jobber via countout is not a very impressive way to begin a career, well, the match was not exactly scripted to go that way. When Edge dove over the top rope, his leg unfortunately came crashing down on top of Jose's head as he rotated. The result of the impact left Jose Estrada with a broken neck. Take a listen to JR's call of the replay. It'd be uh, the right leg, what's the right leg here? Right on the head oh. and snapping a Jose snap there. And man, there's no more dangerous injury in this game than a neck injury. Yes, that's right, there's no more dangerous injury in wrestling than a neck injury. But the good thing is that obviously Edge will never have to worry about that in his career. Good times. Good times. But on a positive note, Edge is now 1-0 in his WWF tenure. We then go backstage where a very angry Kane is yelling and flipping over tables and trash cans, irate over the fact that The Undertaker attacked his father, Paul Bearer. 
Mankind attempts to calm him down by telling him that they will get their revenge this Sunday, and eventually Kane manages to calm down somewhat. This would have been a very dramatic segment, except for the fact that Kane was holding his voice box to his neck while he was yelling, which just made it sound kind of funny. In fact, I'll let you be the judge. Dude, just put the voice box down. You should be using both hands if you're going to commit to smashing a bunch of things. If it's worth doing, it's worth doing right. After a commercial break, we see Jose Estrada getting taken away from ringside on a stretcher, which is one of the few times I can remember a wrestler getting stretchered out when it was actually legitimate. This was Jose's final match on Monday Night Raw, but thankfully, it will not be his last ever wrestling match, as he actually would keep competing sporadically until September of 2009, only two years before Edge himself calls it quits, so I suppose all's well that ends well. Our next match is another King of the Ring quarterfinal, Dan the Beast Severn versus Nation of Domination co-leader Owen Hart. Pretty solid match here, as you might expect when Owen is involved. The finish came when Owen ducked out of the ring to grab a chair, and he just rolled it into the ring for some reason. Severn picked it up, and referee Tim White attempted to stop him from using it. Meanwhile, outside the ring, X-Pac came up from behind on Owen and absolutely leveled him from behind with a sick chair shot to the back of the head as payback for Owen dropping Pac crotch first onto the steel barricade last week. The impact of the chair shot ended up legitimately busting open the back of Owen's head, and, hearkening back to the June 29, 1998 edition of the Wrestling Observer, they claimed that this chair shot actually required seven staples in Owen's head when he went to the hospital after the show. Ouch. Back to the match, Owen then rolled back into the ring, where Severn put him in the same submission move which tore D'Lo Brown's pectoral muscle, and that was enough to give Severn the tap-out victory and advance him to the semifinals of the King of the Ring tournament. After a commercial break, we get our Kaboom of the Week, sponsored by the JVC Kaboom Box. I usually don't bother recapping these, but I'm mentioning this one because the JVC Kaboom of the Week ends up being X-Pac's chair shot to Owen from a few seconds ago. That alone tells you how vicious that chair shot was. JVC felt the need to immediately make it the Kaboom of the Week. Impressive. When we go back to the arena, we see the bloody Owen Hart still sitting in the ring, with The Rock, The Godfather, and a mom jeans-wearing Mark Henry joining him. The Rock grabs a mic and challenges DX to come to the ring for a fight, and sure enough, DX does indeed enter from backstage. However, Commissioner Slaughter and a bunch of referees get in their way before they can make it to ringside. We take another quick commercial break, but when we come back, it is now time for our final King of the Ring quarterfinal matchup, WWF Intercontinental Champion The Rock versus WWF European Champion Triple H, to which I say, not a bad mid-card matchup. The remaining members of the nation and DX have now been escorted backstage, except for China, who presumably has a manager's license. Gotta keep kayfabe alive. As the match begins, Jim Ross informs us that Triple H is actually the reigning king of the ring, which I had completely forgotten, mainly because he formed DX two months later, and him winning it was barely even mentioned after that. This was a very good eight-minute match, although certainly not on par with some of the other ones these guys will end up having. At one point, referee Earl Hebner went outside the ring to check on Triple H after Rock slammed Hunter face-first into the steel steps, so Rock was left by himself inside the ring. China then used this opportunity to sneak up on Rocky, turn him around, and hit him with a DDT. Triple H then rolled back into the ring, made the cover, 
and only got a two count. I think most of the fans thought that was going to be the finish of the match. A few minutes later, China grabbed the European title and jumped up on the ring apron to presumably interfere again, but Hebner got in her way. Triple H then attempted to set up Rock for a pedigree, but Rock instead hit Hunter with a low blow behind Hebner's back. Rock then picked Triple H up, hit him with a fisherman's suplex, and got the three count? Yes, that's right, the Rock pinned Triple H with a perfect plex at a time when the Rock Bottom was already established as his finisher. I never would have guessed that one. However, I will note that an important takeaway from this match is that The Rock, the heel, overcame two-on-one odds to defeat Triple H and China, the faces. It's not too often you see the roles reversed like that, because really, who wants to root for a heel to overcome the odds? Retroactively, though, definitely was a fun match to watch. Check it out. After the match, the other members of DX ran down to the ring to start beating on The Rock, so the other members of the nation then ran down to the ring as well, and we had us a Pier 8 brawl. Referees got between the two factions and eventually separated them, but clearly, this DX Nation feud is showing no signs of letting up anytime soon. And with The Rock's victory, we now have our final four competitors in the King of the Ring tournament. It will be Ken Shamrock versus Jeff Jarrett, and The Rock versus Dan the Beast Severn. Very interesting matchups there, as we could potentially see a Shamrock versus Severn match for the King of the Ring title. Will it play out that way? You'll just have to stay tuned to the next episode to find out. We then cut backstage again, where Kane is still holding his voice box and yelling to comical effect. Mankind tells him that Uncle Paul will be alright, and he asks Kane to stay in the locker room because he has something he needs to say. After a commercial break, sure enough, Mankind is now seated in the middle of the ring with a microphone as the Hell in a Cell cage lowers from the ceiling. And, well, I'm just going to play this clip for you because, number one, it will remind modern fans of how good Mick Foley was on the mic before he became the Commissioner of Raw, and number two, it's the final promo he cuts before his Hell in a Cell match with The Undertaker, which, spoiler alert, ends up being one of the most famous matches in WWE history. Let's take a listen. Just moments away, we understand. I've always enjoyed studying history. And when I was a young boy, I had a favorite picture that hung on my bed of old men gathered on the hallowed field of Gettysburg. Sales coming down. Shaking hands. Why? Northern men and southern men alike. What's going on here? Shaking hands on the very fields where 50 years earlier they had shed each other's blood. What is he talking about? And it about? stood to me as a shining example of the better angels of our nature, of the power of forgiveness, and the ability of time to heal all wounds. And Undertaker, when I think about our history, I couldn't help but believe that it would end up somehow the same way. Gathering together years later in the same hallowed halls where we did battle to reminisce in the boiler room of Cleveland in Madison Square Garden. And then you went and attacked my Uncle Paul I've got a completely new vision. It is of me with my last act on this earth. 
urinating on your grave, you cowardly son of a Wow. Wow. He's sick and dangerous. I never thought the word coward would apply to you. But what other choice do I have? Uncle Paul is many, many things. He is a warm man. He is a loving father. But he is not a wrestler. He is not a fighter. He was defenseless, and you attacked him. That's right. Undertaker's a coward. And we have every right in the world to arrest you and put you behind bars. Do it. But oh, no, no. You see, this is a family matter. And I'm going to put you behind these bars because blood is thicker than water. And if that's not enough, I can guarantee that mankind will have a surprise for everyone that you will not soon forget. What do you mean and by so that? Kane, I ask you to listen close because all is not lost. And when it's all said and done, Kane, you will have Steve Austin's championship. That's what he means. I will have my vengeance. And Uncle Paul will have the Undertaker's soul. That's what he means. Have a nice day. The cell is then raised back up to the ceiling, and this then segues us into our next match, Mankind versus one half of the WWF Tag Team Champions, Billy Gunn, who is accompanied by China. And speaking of China, early on in the match, when Mankind starts taking it to Mr. Ass outside the ring, China actually just jumps right on Foley's back and starts beating the crap out of him in full view of the referee. For some reason, this does not result in an automatic disqualification, but rather the ref just decides to send China backstage instead. Odd decision. The rest of the match was pretty physical, as you would expect from Mick Foley. The finish came when Billy went for a pile driver, but Mankind reversed it, dropped him to the ground, and slingshotted him into the turnpost, and then he followed that up by putting Mr. Ass in the mandible claw, which was enough to score the submission victory. If you recall the events of last week's Raw, Kane and Mankind won a Tag Team Royal Rumble to earn the number one contendership for the Tag Team titles, and they have each now beaten a member of the Tag Team Champions tonight on Raw. Also on tonight's episode, we get a rarity, as DX lost three of their four matches on the show, so mark your calendars because that probably won't be happening again anytime soon. Anyway, as soon as the match ends, Mankind rolls out of the ring and runs back to the locker room to check on Kane, but the Big Red Machine is nowhere to be found. We then segue back to the arena, where Sable, of all people, is now heading to the ring, still dressed in her all-black leather Catwoman suit. As JR mentioned earlier, she now has a position with Titan Sports, so she's carrying a lot of weight and not just in her bra. She grabs a mic and, for some reason, she introduces Stone Cold Steve Austin. He comes to the ring wearing his brand new white Austin 316 baseball jersey, and I have to assume they probably didn't sell a lot of those, even though Austin's name was on it. Austin yanks the mic away from Sable and says he thinks there must be something suspicious going on, so he then proceeds to hold up Sable's hand and teach her how to flip off Vince McMahon. Pretty amusing. 
He then sends her backstage and says that he accepts Kane's challenge for the first blood match at King of the Ring. Austin then hilariously says that if Kane is dumb enough to set himself on fire if he loses the match, then Stone Cold will be right there with marshmallows and hot dogs, and he'll even throw another log on the fire if he starts to go out. Good stuff. But speaking of fire, Kane's pyro then goes off, and he emerges from backstage. Kane then lifts his arms as if to signal that he was going to do his usual setting the turnposts on fire, but instead, a shower of blood falls from the ceiling and covers Stone Cold. How fitting that on the night when Edge debuts, we also get our first ever bloodbath in a WWF ring. Kane once again has his voice box, and he leaves us with these parting words. We then go off the air with Austin covered in blood, well, fake blood according to Kane, and staring into the camera with his brand new white baseball jersey being completely ruined. Quite the cool image to go out on. I'll delve into this a bit further in just a bit, but for now, let's go to the wrap-up. Yo, I slayed them seas back in the rec room era. My style broke motherfucking backs like him for terror. I freak beat slamming like Iron Sheik. We dedicated to cast that's been dug in. Vinny Paz got more homes than Jim Duggan. I'm bananas out of my fucking mind. They won't let me back in. Cause I was down before the heights like Dusty Rhodes and Bob Backlund. Bruno San Martino, Stan Stasiak. Now the rockin' Stone Cold on my favorite maniac. The top rooster pluckin'. Chickens when they pluckin'. WWF stands for women where we fuckin'. The Ratings Recap Last week, a live episode of Raw defeated Nitro by the score of 4.32 to 4.03. This week, Raw was back to being pre-taped six days in advance, but they were still victorious in the ratings, defeating Nitro 4.27 to 4.10. What did WCW put up against the WWF on this night? Here are the results. Disco Inferno defeated Lynn Denton. Is that a woman? Yuji Nagata defeated Tokyo Magnum. The Public Enemy defeated Horace and Sick Boy. Goldberg defeated Rick Fuller to retain his United States title. Alex Wright defeated Eddie Guerrero. Conan defeated Riggs. Steve Mongo McMichael defeated Stevie Ray by disqualification. Bret Hart defeated Chris Benoit in a 15-minute match that you should definitely check out. And in the main event, Kevin Green defeated the Giant by disqualification. Yes, that's right. Kevin Green has returned to WCW. If you don't remember who he is, Kevin Green is a linebacker in the National Football League who, at this juncture, was signed to the Carolina Panthers. In the offseason, Green would occasionally wrestle for WCW, much to the chagrin of his coaches, who worried that he would hurt himself off the field. Fortunately, that never came to pass, and when he went back to the NFL a few months later after this episode of Nitro, he actually ended up finishing third in the league with 15 quarterback sacks, and he would ultimately finish his career in 1999, third in NFL history in sacks, where he still stands today. Not only that, but he was actually just inducted into the NFL Hall of Fame this past year, so clearly he was a much better football player than a wrestler. But Kevin Green was not the biggest sports superstar who got a ton of mileage on this episode of Nitro. We actually opened Nitro with a recap of last Thursday's episode of The Tonight Show with Jay Leno, where Hulk Hogan and Dennis Rodman were the scheduled guests, but they were interrupted by Diamond Dallas Page and Carl Malone. For some context, this confrontation on The Tonight Show happened only four days after Rodman's Chicago Bulls had defeated Malone's Utah Jazz to win the NBA championship, so kudos to WCW for striking while the iron was hot, I suppose. They have now booked a tag team match for their upcoming Bash at the Beach pay-per-view in July, Hogan and Rodman versus DDP 
and Malone. It appears that WCW has come up with a strategy for attempting to lure some eyeballs away from the WWF, invest in celebrities. And hey, since they were just on The Tonight Show, maybe they could even try to lure Jay Leno into a WCW ring. I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. That, that of course, would never happen. And on that note, let's go to the Raw synopsis. Another week, another very satisfying episode of Monday Night Raw. It's hard to believe that they booked the first blood stipulation for the title match less than a week before King of the Ring. I assumed that there was more of a build-up to it, but no, only six televised days. Still, the Austin-Kane feud is moving along quite nicely, even though they're giving way too much mileage to Kane's new voice box gimmick. My one quibble with the Austin-Kane feud is the fact that it's been pretty disjointed. A few weeks ago, Kane and Mankind attacked Austin, then Vince McMahon accused The Undertaker of being behind it, and then tonight, with no real explanation, Vince is standing alongside Kane as he announces the first blood stipulation. Not a ton of this makes a lot of sense at the moment, and we just have to guess as to whether or not there is a grand conspiracy here, or if it's just a bunch of angles being thrown at the wall to see what sticks. It's a tad confusing. But other than that, the King of the Ring tournament has actually been very enjoyable, particularly the fact that we got eight minutes of a Rock Triple H match on free television, which you certainly can't complain about. The only real downsides to this episode were Edge almost killing Jose Estrada and the Al Snow angle, which is getting increasingly more cringeworthy each week. All in all, though, another enthusiastic thumbs up for this episode of Raw. And on that note, I think we can wrap this episode up. Once again, I must encourage you to tune in for the next episode of this show because Adam from the Rundown Wrestling Podcast will be joining for a King of the Ring slash Monday Night Raw mega episode, and we have a ton of things to cover there. It's going to be epic, so be sure to download that once it's available, likely a few weeks from now. And as always, thank you for listening to the Raw Attitude Podcast. I am Henry Hugepex, the suplex-throwing human duplex, and I will remind you once again to feel free to subscribe to us on iTunes, Stitcher, or Google Play, send us an email at rawattitudepodcast at gmail.com, or tweet us at rawattitudepod. Or, of course, more importantly, write us a five-star review on iTunes, because that helps us find an even wider audience. And, of course, if you do that, I will be sure to read the review on this very podcast and give you full credit for doing so. I have nothing further to add about this episode, so I will now leave you with a clip from a future episode of Raw in the Attitude Era, where The Rock discusses what to do with Kane's new toy. Enjoy that, and I will catch you next time for the King of the Ring slash Raw mega episode spectacular. Well, Kane The Rock says this. He's in a giving mood tonight. You come on out here. The Rock's got a little gift for you. He'll give you this microphone right here so you can talk in front of the millions of Rock's fans. Take your little voice gimmick, stick it to your throat, and say this. My name is Kane, and I am a Rudy Poo candy ass. <laughs> I don't think Kane would say that at all, Kane. And The Rock says this, Kane. That little voice box you used to use, you've left The Rock with one choice on what to do with it. Uh-oh. I got a feeling... The Rock says he'll take your little voice box, take all the batteries out, lube it up, turn that some bitch sideways, and stick it straight up your candy ass! If you smell what The Rock
there it is. People's eyebrow. It's cooking. 